Oh, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 11. Deuteronomy, chapter 11. You can find that on page 155 if you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles. Uh, this morning, we are going to be looking at verses 1 through 12. So Deuteronomy 11, verses 1 through 12. It is, it is very popular this time of the year to speak of the mystery or the miracle of Christmas uh, you find it in churches, you find it on the street, you find it in Christmas cards and Christmas songs and even in movies. I mean, you've got Miracle on 34th Street, It's a Wonderful Life, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer even. They're all centered on this idea of Christmas miracles, even Christmas magic. Everyone, I think perhaps except maybe the most hardened of Scrooges, likes this idea of peace on earth and goodwill to men. It's a message that appeals to everyone. And I have a feeling that when most people talk about the miracle of Christmas, they're probably thinking of something like that. But the real miracle of Christmas is bigger and more profound. The real miracle of Christmas is the great mystery of the incarnation and the birth of Jesus Christ. Um, in his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer adds a little perspective to the meaning of Christmas and he says, the supreme mystery with which the gospel confronts us lies in the Christmas message of incarnation. The real staggering Christian claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God made man, that the second person of the Godhead became the second man, determining human destiny, the second representative head of the race, that he took humanity without loss of deity so that Jesus of Nazareth was as truly and fully divine as he was human. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than to lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. And there was no illusion or deception in this. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is this truth of the Incarnation. While there are many who celebrate Christmas as nothing more than a winter holiday, believers have a real reason to celebrate. Because in the coming of Christ, God the Son entered into the world in a most unique way to live as a real man, to die as a real man, and to rise again for humanity so that all who trust in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The peace, the joy, the love that we all crave, that we celebrate, that we put on our Christmas cards, that all became a reality in the appearance of Christ. That, my friends, is the meaning of Christmas. It is a mystery that can only be explained when we accept what the, what the scriptures tell us, which has been a stumbling block for so many people, but which is the essential cornerstone of our faith. If Jesus is not God, the cross means nothing. But because he is, it means everything. In Hebrews 5, we are told that Jesus is able to serve us as our high priest, having been appointed by God to act on our behalf in relation to God because he is God's son. The author of Hebrews goes on to tell us that Jesus is able to deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward because if he suffered and experienced weakness himself, though he prevailed over it in his perfect obedience. And then in verse 7 he says, 
that Jesus in the days of his flesh offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and then being, having been made perfect or being made complete, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who believe in him, having been designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, it has always struck me as I read Hebrews 5 that the author of Hebrews would go so far as to say that Jesus learned obedience. The word there is manthano, which means to learn, to be instructed, or to comprehend by experience. Things which can only be said of Jesus because he took on a human nature. And it is important that we see that because, as the author of Hebrews says, it is because of this that Jesus is able to serve as our high priest, that appointed representative for us. Dr. Stephen Wellen puts it well when he says, Without the eternal Son's fully human birth, growth, and development, we would not have an all-sufficient Savior whose sacrificial death achieved for us the full forgiveness of our sins and whose sympathetic service helps us to walk in the power of forgiveness. The outer life of Christ presented to us according to the Bible's own terms demonstrates that he came into this world with a fully human nature to accomplish as a man all that God required and planned for humanity. Now that's a long introduction. And what on earth does all that have to do with Deuteronomy 11, verses 1 through 12? Well, everything. And that's what I want to show you uh, this morning. In this passage, Moses calls upon Israel, the people, uh, to, he calls them to love the Lord, as he has many times in this book already, and he also calls on them to consider the discipline, the instruction that God had given them. This passage is a call to consider the mighty hand of the Lord and all he has accomplished to defend his great name, to redeem his people, and to call them out to live in a right relationship with him, to enjoy his blessings forever. And what I want to do this morning is to connect with you in this contemplation of what God has done in history, what God has done supremely in Christ. So as we get into this passage today, what I want to do is to extend Moses' call to you to contemplate these things. And ultimately, I want to show you how King Jesus brings all these things about through his atoning work, starting with the incarnation and culminating in his cross, resurrection, and exaltation. So let's begin by reading our text. If you will, please stand for the reading of God's word. Once again, we're in Deuteronomy chapter 11, starting at verse 1. I'll be reading through verse 12. This is the word of the Lord. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. And consider today since I am not speaking to your children who have not known or seen it, consider the discipline of the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand and his outstretched arm, his signs and his deeds that he did in Egypt to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and to all his land, and what he did to the army of Egypt, to their horses and their chariots, how he made the water of the Red Sea to flow over them as they pursued after you, 
and how the Lord has destroyed them to this day, and what he did to you in the wilderness until you came to this place, and what he did to Dathan and Abiram and the sons of Eliab, son of Reuben, how the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households, their tents, and every living thing that followed them in the midst of all Israel. For your eyes have seen all the great work of the Lord of the Lord that he did. You shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today, that you may be strong and go in and take possession of the land that you are going over to possess, and that you may live long in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give to them and to their offspring, a land flowing with milk and honey. For the land that you are entering to take possession of it is not like the land of Egypt from which you, can't, you have come, where you have sowed your seeds and irrigated it like a garden of vegetables. But the land you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water by the rain from heaven, a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, the theme of this passage and the the overall command of this passage should feel very familiar to you if you've been following with us through our time in the book of Deuteronomy, because the intent of this passage is the same intent of this entire book, to instruct God's people in the way of holiness. So Moses begins this chapter with what I think at this point would be a very familiar command to us. You shall therefore, based on everything we've seen about God's holiness, his work of redemption, the way he restores broken sinners to himself and rebels to himself through his great grace, based on all that, Moses says, you shall love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, his commandments always, to obey and to love and obey God. This is the requirement of the law. But there's something new here. As familiar as that command that Moses starts with in this chapter is, there is something new, a new prescription. And it's a command to consider, to contemplate the ways of God, specifically his discipline or his instruction. And we see that in verse 2. So our main idea this morning, although I think the main point of this whole passage is this command that we've received over and over and over to love the Lord your God with all your heart and to obey him, although that is the main command, I think the main idea of this particular passage and what we want to look at today is to consider the discipline of the Lord and to walk in a manner worthy of the life of Christ. So that is our main idea. Consider the discipline of the Lord. And as Christians, we see that we are called to walk in a manner worthy of the life of Christ. Now, there are three reasons we are called to consider the discipline of the Lord. And that's what I want to unpack with you this morning. In considering the discipline of the Lord, we see that God swallows up his enemies. It is a dangerous fearful thing to be God's enemy. Second, we see that God swallows up the presumptuous. We must not presume to come to God on our own terms. And then third, we will see how God has swallowed up death for us, how the chastisement of Christ brings us peace. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning, starting with the way that God swallows up his enemies. 
As you read the book of Deuteronomy, it is important to remember that these words were first spoken and written down for the Israelites who first received the promised land. This is the generation that entered in with Joshua. They're being instructed by Moses as they're about to go in. It's always important to keep that in mind because Moses will give specific commands to that generation about what they're to do as, as, as they go in. This is a book for all generations, but it had special significance for them. And we're reminded of this in verse 2 because Moses gets very personal with this generation. He says, I love this little parenthesis, he says, he says, And consider today, since I'm not speaking to your children who have not known it or seen it, consider the discipline of the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand and outstretched arm, his signs and his deeds that he did to Egypt, to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and to all his land, and what he did to the army of Egypt, to their horses and their chariots how he made the water of the Red Sea flow over them as they pursued you. Now Moses' main command, the thing driving all of this, shows up in verses 1 and verse 8. It's this command that we have heard over and over in the book of Deuteronomy, which we need to hear over and over again. To love the Lord your God, to keep his charge, his statutes, and his commandments always. This is the heart of the law, what Jesus calls the first command. And what Moses says here about considering, about contemplating the discipline of the Lord is part of that. It's part of learning to love the Lord. It's part of contemplating his ways. It's part of obeying him. The reason this passage feels so personal is because of the way that Moses designates this specifically for this generation in front of him that he's speaking to personally, reminding them of things that they hadn't just heard about, but things that they had actually seen with their own eyes, things that their children had not experienced. I think it's interesting that Moses actually records this caveat in verse 2. I'm not speaking to your children who have not known this or seen this. It's not that this isn't a lesson for them too, but rather Moses is about to describe very tangible experiences that this generation went through in a way that the generations who came after them did not. And he wants them to contemplate this because this is going to be key to them following through every other command he has given them. And he tells them, as as he says this, he tells them to consider five things about what they experienced as they came out of Egypt and as they went through the wilderness. The first thing he tells them to consider is to consider the discipline of the Lord. Now, the word here is musar. And and discipline is a very good translation of that, but it also can mean uh, correction or chastening and instruction. I'm going to bring that. That word is important because it's going to just hang that on on the wall there. Just remember it for a second because later in in this sermon we're going to see why that is important. This word actually appears throughout the Old Testament, especially in the book of, of Psalms and Proverbs. It always occurs alongside wisdom and understanding. The wise are said to receive correction. That's the word that is being used here. And fools refuse it, and they refuse to learn from it. Although Moses mentions four other things that he wants the people to consider here as they think about God, how he rescued them from Egypt, how he dealt with Dathan and Abiram, I think that this is really meant to be the chief lesson he wants to drive home for the people and, and by extension for us. He wants the people to learn from the way that God dealt with Pharaoh and these other men 
He wants them to take the lesson that is meant to be learned from God's correction, not to be fools, but to be wise, to take this discipline to heart. Because the discipline of the Lord is essential to having a right heart to love and obey God. Now, related to that, the second thing that Moses tells the people to consider is the greatness of God. While this word, godel, is very, very closely related to God's glory, it actually has specifically to do with God's magnitude, with his greatness. In contemplating the discipline of the Lord and his work, Moses has indicated to us that we are meant to see God in his greatness, how he rules over the nations, how he accomplishes the impossible, why he is so worthy of our love, our adoration, our obedience, and our trust. Related to God's magnitude, the third thing that Moses instructs us to consider is the might of God's hand and his outstretched arm. God's arm is never too short to deliver or accomplish his purposes. No one can stop him from what he has purposed to do. The hand of the Lord which provides and the arm of the Lord which delivers exalts itself over all of God's foes and over the enemies of his people. In particular, we see that in the fourth thing that Moses tells the people to consider, to contemplate. And that is how God dealt with specifically with Egypt and Pharaoh. God took on one of the greatest kingdoms that the world has ever seen on their own turf. He showed that the gods that they purported were gods were not gods at all. And then in power, God brought his people out from Egypt, redeeming them, joining them into a covenant with him at Sinai, and consecrating them in the, out of the midst of all the people of the earth to be his special people. And then the fifth thing that we see that we are called to contemplate has to do with the way that God dealt with Pharaoh's army. Uh, Moses goes very into some, quite a bit of detail here describing how God consumed Pharaoh's army with the Red Sea. He delivered his people by bringing them through the Red Sea, splitting it in two, and letting them walk across on dry ground. But he destroyed Egypt's forces by making that same sea close up on them and swallow them up when they tried to pursue his people. He consumed them and destroyed them in a final blow to the strength and the dignity of Egypt in a way that they would never forget. The whole world got to see that day that there is one God and one Lord of all the earth. He turns the hearts of kings like water in his hands. He raises up and puts down. In righteousness, he judges and delivers. The ten plagues of Egypt and the crossing of the Red Sea brought global attention to the glory of God over and against his enemies and the enemies of his people. If we read further, we see how the kings, the kings and the kingdoms of Moab and Edom were shaken to the core as Israel entered their lands on the way to Canaan. Rahab told the spies in the book of Joshua that they had heard about how God dried up the Red Sea when they came out of Egypt and that there was no spirit left in any of them because it was clear that the Lord, the God of Israel, is the God of the heavens above and the earth beneath. That, that was before God even did the miracle of splitting the Jordan River in half and letting this generation walk across on that. So now, what, what lesson are we meant to take from this contemplation? What lesson was Israel called to have, and what are we meant to take from it? Well, 
clearly we are meant to see that it is a dangerous thing to be the enemy of God. Moses frames all of this as a discipline that God's people are meant to learn from, but I suppose we get to learn from it at Egypt's expense. Whether in the plagues or in the sea, Israel got to experience God's hand of deliverance, while Egypt experienced God's wrath. God gave Egypt over to a hard, unbelieving, unrepentant heart. Just as Paul describes in Romans 1, God gave Pharaoh and his people over to the desires of that rebellious heart, to do all that they desired. And for that, they received the just wages of death. They they lost their crops. They lost their livestock. They lost the, the sanctity of their land, their safety, their sons, and their armies. It is a dangerous thing to be God's enemy because it is a lethal thing to be God's enemy. And God is gracious and merciful. He shows kindness upon kindness to the undeserving, but he always fulfills perfect justice. He holds the guilty accountable. He gives the wicked according to their need, to to what they've done. We We might take this lesson as a given, something I think as plain as the nose on your face, but Moses would have us to take this lesson to heart. Because in the depravity of man, the sentence of sin does not dissuade hearts which have been poisoned by it from continuing to partake of it. As Paul describes in Romans 1 verse 32, that though the enemies of God know his righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Until we fear to be God's enemies, We will never be willing to part with our sin. Sin offers too much short-term satisfaction to us. It is the deadliest, most addictive drug in the world. It corrupts and it kills. But until God sets us free from it, we are bound to it. The lesson that Moses meant for the people to learn and to contemplate in the discipline of the Lord was to teach them to see the end of the wicked that the wicked are not to be feared because God delivers those who trust in him. And yet we are to fear lest we fall into the same sort of rebellion that Egypt did itself. Egypt belonged to the Lord, but they did not honor God as the Lord. In the stipulations of his covenant with Israel, God told the people continually to take care not to fall into the trap of wanting to be like the nations that were around them. He warned them if they did, they would experience the same fate, the same judgment, the same wrath that was about to come on their enemies. We need to hear this same lesson. We need to take it to heart to consider the end of the wicked. Might, might be my favorite psalm, Psalm 73, is where Asaph, who is the choir director of the, of the nation, talks about how he sees the wicked prevailing. He sees how they grow fat and sleek. They have more than enough, while the righteous suffer. And Asaph says to himself in his heart, I have kept my hands clean for nothing. Why am I doing this? And then Asaph speaks about how he comes into the, to the temple of the Lord, to the house of the Lord. And suddenly he sees, God makes him to see the end of the wicked. That although God may raise them up, he only does so so that he may topple them down. And Asaph realizes his error. 
He realizes how important it is to see the end of wickedness, to see that there is nothing worth treasuring in this world like God. So he ends his psalm by saying, Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth I have nothing, that there's nothing I desire but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, however, the Lord is my portion forever. That is why the godly need to see the end of the wicked, not so that we can exalt ourselves over them, but so that we may protect our hearts from wanting to run after those same things, so that we may see that there is justice in the world, that God will see it through, and that God's hand is never too short to see that accomplished. We need to hear this same lesson. We need to consider the disciplines of the Lord, of what he does to those who reject his mercy and peace. We need to see that so that we will not fall ourselves into the seductive lie that a little sin is okay. So that we will not despair when the wicked seem to win, when things are going against us, or when we suffer for righteousness' sake. We need to learn this lesson so that we can truly treasure divine holiness and divine justice. We need to learn this lesson so that we may fear the Lord and serve him all our days because he always rescues and he always cares for those who forsake their sin and trust in him. The allure of sin is real and the lies of the devil are seductive. And by considering the discipline of the Lord as Moses has instructed the people here, by considering how God gives the wicked over to those wicked desires and destroys them, We learn to wait patiently on the Lord. We learn to arm ourselves against the schemes of our enemy. And we learn to seek refuge in God, our Savior. So God destroys and swallows up his enemies. That is the first lesson Moses has for us. The second lesson he has for us is to learn, which we are to learn and contemplate, is a warning about having a presumptuous heart. What I mean by a presumptuous heart is a heart that would seek to come to God on its own terms, not through the means that he has provided. This, I think, is a harder lesson. It's, we, we love that lesson of God will see justice through. God destroys the wicked. He swallows up the wicked. But now the canon, if you will, of God's discipline here is aimed at the hearts of God's people themselves. This is probably, this lesson, I think, is essential for us because in this case, we're dealing with an enemy that's close to home, something we all have to face. In verses 5 through 7, Moses mentions another time that, that Israel got to see God's magnitude and his power, except this time it wasn't against an outside force. It was against an inside force. Dathan and Iram, two men from the tribe of Reuben, tried to lead a rebellion against Moses in the wilderness. Now, this might be a story you're not as familiar with. Uh, If you want to read more about this, you can find it in Numbers chapter 16, which records what we more popularly know as Korah's Rebellion. Have you heard of Korah's Rebellion? Okay, if you're not familiar with it, check out Numbers 16 this afternoon. Korah was a Levite. 
He's not mentioned specifically here in Deuteronomy 11, but he was part of organizing this. Now, Moses doesn't give us all the details here. After, after all, he's speaking to people who saw these things with their own eyes, who experienced these things, so he's not laying them out again. And we have number 16 to, to lay that in detail for us. But for those of us who didn't see it, essentially what had happened is that these three men had decided that Moses was full of himself, that he had gone too far, and that he thought too highly of himself. And what they said to Moses is, that uh, they said, all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? So basically, what they had decided is that Moses had no authority, that he had somehow appointed himself above everyone else, and that they ought not to listen to them, because, oh, the Spirit of the Lord is with me just as much as it is with you, Moses. So they rejected him as God's appointed one. They refused to answer to Moses, and they refused to recognize his leadership. When he called them for, to, to come before the Lord at the tabernacle, these two men in particular and their families said, no way, we're staying right here. They said that Moses was in this for himself, that he had ill motives, and they decided they would be better to take over. The fundamental problem with Dathan and Abiram was their pride. They forgot the fear that had struck them when they met with God at Mount Sinai, when he spoke to the whole assembly. And the whole assembly said, send Moses up or we're going to die. They decided that they could come to God on their own terms. And they rejected Moses and Aaron, the two men that God had appointed to serve them. And for their rebellion, this is what they received. Moses describes it here in verse 5. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households, their tents, and every living thing that followed them in the midst of Israel. Now, uh, living in Kentucky, uh, sinkholes are a fairly regular thing. It wasn't that long ago that the, the Corvette Museum basically got swallowed up and they lost like 20 irreplaceable Corvettes. That, you know, I can imagine something like this, but nothing had ever happened like this in the history of man before. This was no mere sinkhole. The way that the earth opened up and swallowed these men, their families, and everything that belonged to them was on command. And it's something that Moses even said to the people, if God has not spoken to me, then let this not happen. But if he has, let something new happen. Let the earth swallow them up. And immediately it happened. Moses did not put himself in the position of authority the way these men had charged him. He was appointed by God to serve the people, to speak to them, to lead them, and even intercede for them. By trying to take power into their own hands, these men hadn't merely defied Moses, God's servant, they defied God himself. And that is the lesson we're meant to take. A presumptuous heart is just as much at war with God as a heart that is in open rebellion against him. That is what is most keenly on display with Korah's rebellion and the way that God responded by swallowing up these men and literally removing them from the earth along with everything they owned. The judgment that came on Egypt for their open war against God and his people came in a sense... On, in the same way on these men and their families 
who, even though they bore the outward marks of the covenant on their bodies, had no real fellowship with God. And they showed that through the way they rebelled against God. Rather than submit themselves to God, rather than come to him through the means he had appointed, they tried to seize control for themselves. And they, in doing so, they leapt to their own destruction. The earth swallowed them up just as the sea swallowed up Pharaoh's army. This second lesson is particularly important for us because we must see that if we are to come to God, we must come to him through the means that he has appointed, in the way that he has appointed. A presumptuous heart is the heart that will jump over the wall of salvation to try and claim it for itself when God has clearly called us to enter through the door of his beloved Son and has called all who do not come through the door impostors. A presumptuous heart will work and work and work and work to earn God's favor. It will take pride in its own deeds, forgetting that no amount of works can ever justify us before God. A presumptuous heart will look at God's great grace and not see it as the mercy that it is, but will see it as an opportunity to indulge in sin, to say, I will have this and I will have God's forgiveness too. God has to forgive me. He has to love me. And I'm going to go after this thing. A presumptuous heart refuses to listen to what God has said in his word. And it will, it will instead choose to believe things about God that are suitable to its own liking, trying to create God in its own image. We must learn the lesson that is taught to us about having a presumptuous heart here so that we can commit ourselves not merely to taking on the name of Christ, but of actually living with a sold-out commitment to him in submission to him with Jesus as our Lord. We must learn this so that we may, we may learn not to be at peace with sin, but to fight it and kill it daily. We must learn this lesson and contemplate it so that we may not live in such a way that when we stand before Christ, we hear the words, depart from me, I never knew you, but may instead hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We must contemplate and learn this lesson so that we may see that there is hope in only one Savior, in only one King, who is Jesus Christ. So beware a presumptuous heart. Beware of being the enemy of God and beware a presumptuous heart. Now this brings us to our third point. God swallows up death. The lessons of the past, which Moses refers to here, show us the danger of being God's enemy and the danger of having a presumptuous heart. And that, that, that has this effect and leads us up to verses 8 through 12 in which Moses switches to consider the blessings of God and to charge the people to live in a manner worthy of his grace and the redemption which they had received from him. There are a number of things that, that stand out from Moses' description about this land. Most importantly, what stands out is the way that God cares for it and tends it. Moses describes this as a land that is flowing with milk and honey, which means it is rich, it is good, it is the kind of inheritance that you want. This is not like the land of Egypt 
where they had been purchased out of slavery. It's not a place like the wilderness where they have wandered in judgment for 40 years. Moses says, the land that you are entering to take possession of it is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it like a garden of vegetables. So you plant your seed, you go to the Nile, and you cut out places so that water can flow to your garden so it can grow. That's, he says, it's not like that. The land you are going to, to possess, is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water by the rain from heaven, a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. So, so in this new land, God is the gardener, and he is pouring out riches upon this land. His eyes are attentive to it, to give it everything it needs, to provide for its residents, to care for it. It has hills and valleys which are rich in soil, rich in nutrients, rich in resources, and rich in water. This is a, this is a land that God cares for. He's attentive to it to make it a good land from beginning to end. You can, you can feel here something of Moses' description of the Garden of Eden where the land would be watered by a mist that would come up from the ground and then come back down. It's, it's very similar for a reason. We're meant to see reflections of Eden in this new land. If Israel wants to live here, Moses tells them they must be very careful to obey God. In verse 8, he says, You shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today, that you may be strong, and go in and take possession of the land that you were going over to possess, and that you may live long in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them and their offspring. So again, we're seeing the purpose of the law, that though it points us to our inability to keep it, it also has a purpose in showing God's mercy and kindness and equipping us to walk in holiness and love and obedience to Christ. As we read verse 8, we are not to think that Moses is calling Israel to somehow earn their way into the blessing. He's already made that point, that they're getting this land because of God's grace to them. But what Moses is showing them is that if Israel is going to enjoy the benefits of this covenant land, they're going to have to walk in a, and live in a manner that was worthy of the God who was giving them to it, get to them, to live in love and obedience to him. They were going to have to live in this new covenant if they wanted to enjoy the blessings of the covenant. Now, if you've paid any attention, paid attention to anything that we've said in this sermon thus far, pay attention to this, because this is really where we arrive at the lesson in the lessons, the main idea that we're meant to take from all of this. All the benefits that Israel enjoyed in the land were a gift of God's good grace every bit of it. You see, if, if anything, Israel deserved to be like Egypt, to be drowned at the bottom of the sea. If Israel deserved anything, they deserved to be swallowed up by the earth like Dathan and Abiram. They had no righteousness in themselves. They had all sinned against the Lord, just as we all have. And so while the lessons that Moses has taught so far about the discipline of the Lord, they have, made, have all been trying to make a point to us about how, how dangerous God is in his holiness to sin and to sinners, and how guilty we are to have acted so presumptuously against God in our sin and our rebellion, breaking his law and loving the passions of our flesh. Now the lesson is a lesson of how deep and amazing God's grace is, because while Israel deserves 
deserve to be destroyed, and we the same, God has poured out his riches and his kindness on us by blessing us with what we do not deserve and swallowing up death for us. How is this possible? How how can God be just and give such grace to sinners? Well, the answer, the answer of the gospel is that God has swallowed up our sin and death through the work of Jesus Christ. If you will, if, if you will flip with me to Isaiah 53. Brad read this for us earlier. But as you're, as you're flipping there, look at verse 4, verses 4 through 6. Listen to what Isaiah says. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement. There's the word that brought us peace. That is the same word Moses uses in Deuteronomy 11 to describe the discipline of the Lord. The chastisement that fell on Christ brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed, Isaiah says. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The discipline, the chastisement that fell on Christ on the cross is the wrath that you and I deserve for our sin. It fell on him so that we could be set free, so that we could enjoy the benefits of the blessing of God's promise even at his own expense. That is the lesson of the good land that Israel was receiving, a land they didn't deserve, which came to them at the expense of God's salvation in his son. This is a blessing that has been expanded and upheld in the work of King Jesus. We get life because King Jesus swallowed up death in his victory. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus. Moses taught the people of Israel to learn from the discipline of the Lord, not to be like the nations around them, and not to have a presumptuous heart that tried to come to God on its own terms, but rather to walk in right response to God's grace, to walk in obedience and love to him. That command is a command for us too. Though in Christ we receive a new heart and a new spirit who dwells in us and equips us to do that. You can almost hear Moses pleading in Paul's own words in Colossians 3 when he says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him 
in glory. Our glory is a glory that is not our own. It is a greater glory which has been given to us by God through Christ. That promise of life, that freedom from death is safe and secure in the completed work of King Jesus who swallowed up death for our sake so that we could be made one with him in a right relationship with God by faith. So the lesson I commend to you this morning, especially as we celebrate Christmas, is a lesson to remember what God has done for you in Christ, to feel the discipline of the Lord, to see how right he is to be so wrathful against your sin and how gracious he is to have laid that wrath upon his son, to swallow up your death and to give you eternal life, to be received by faith. God has shown us mercy and grace that we don't deserve, but he has done this to the praise and the glory of his son. And what we celebrate, the miracle of Christmas, is how Christ entered the world to do just that. Now, Jesus says, no man comes to the Father except by him, and we can see why. No one else is able to make us holy. No one else is able to offer that sacrifice. No one else is able to atone for our sins. So, brothers and sisters, God has given us not only what we need, but far much more. He has shown us his amazing love. And he calls us on the basis of that to live by grace in the light of his glory. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, as we contemplate your word this morning, as we consider your discipline, Lord, it's with fear and trembling that we come before you, and yet we still come before you boldly because of the work of King Jesus. Your own son came to make us sons and daughters to deliver on a promise to crush the serpent, to make us your children through faith in him. And Lord, this morning, we pray that you would give us hearts that that are careful to contemplate your disciplines, but also, and because of that, even even more bent on contemplating the measures of your infinite grace in Christ. Help us to cling to that and to speak of that as we go out into this week to share the good news of what you have done to save us from our sin. And Lord, I pray that as we do, you would work through that, the word of your people, the witness of your people, to bring many more to know you, not as their enemy, but as their father. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in response to what we have seen, please stand up as we sing, Christ the Lord has risen today.